Puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something there beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Sayers Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know All right, people, 11-22-63, a day that will forever be remembered as the day one of the most appreciated presidents was killed in broad daylight in full public view. Yes, the JFK assassination has dominated no small part of conspiratorial attention over the years, and the saga contains so many twists and turns that you can spend days digging through it and you'll still be left with a lot of confusion. But that's not all, folks, because we've also examined many events over the years that seem to have an eerie and almost unbelievable degree of symbolism, ritual elements, and esoteric patterning. Notable examples would be the founding of America, 9-11, and of course, the recent Vegas shooting. Well, surprise, surprise, this assassination event is no exception. So the great Michael Joseph of the Schism 206 YouTube channel has returned on this fateful anniversary not to rehash the whodunit conversations we've heard a thousand times before, but to lead us through the deep, dark, occulted waters and unpeel the onion of ritual layers that he's extracted from that day. If you don't remember Michael's previous appearances on THC, we started with a show about his occult science series of YouTube videos and a dissection of the elite's secret religion. And in his second appearance, we took what he knows about this secret religion, the esoteric and exoteric expressions of it, and the words of Blavatsky, Crowley, and Pike, and we pulled it all together to see how it matched up with that bit of conspiracy lore known as the Hidden Hand Saga. And I really enjoyed both previous shows, and I'm sure today will be no different. Here he is, the professor of patterns, a scholar of symbolism, the autodidact of occult everything. Michael Joseph, my man, welcome back to the higher side. <laughs> well, thanks, Greg, for the intro that I, I appreciate, but I'll take a little bit more humble approach with that. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get them hooked. You got to get them hooked. <laughs> but man, I think this is going to be great. I've heard bits and pieces of the occult aspects of the assassination and terms like the killing of the king ritual. But what you sent me on this is really just mind blowing. I don't know if I've seen this many layers applied to really anything before. So I think it's going to be a fun one. But because it is going to be so dense, is there anything to say at the onset in terms of the overview or approach that you're taking? What should people know to kind of get us off the ground here? Yeah, I guess the basic point that I'd like to outline is I'm not offering any sort of theory as to what happened, who did it. You know, that's been covered to death over the years. And I personally, I don't even know what I actually think about it. And even going through all of this stuff, it's kind of made that even stranger, but I think it really helps in terms of understanding all of the metaphysical elements that might be at play. And for me, it just helps me just kind of reaffirm what I think about the existence of the spiritual world and, and our place in it. And that's kind of the reason why I've been fueled to go into it so much. And this was actually the first thing that I ever really looked at. I wasn't even intending to be like a researcher putting videos out or anything like that. I was just a dude looking at this stuff and wondering more about it. And once I started learning about 
the idea of rituals being encoded into things like 9-11. What really started it is I went on a Google map search and I looked at Daily Plaza. I'm like, hmm, what's here? And I noticed, wow, this looks a lot like the Tree of Life. And that really just spiraled into everything that I've done. And I didn't really intend for any of this to happen, but it seems like it all kind of lined up with where I was in my life. And here we are. So that's pretty much all I have to say about it as a whole. Right on. Yes, that Tree of Life, Dealey Plaza overlay is just incredible. It is it is one of those things that makes you want to dig deeper. But so you did put together this new series of slides for each ritual that you kind of see in play here. And those slides are so helpful. They will be in the show notes, I believe, if we can get them in there. But before we get to each one, just give people an idea of the depth here. Can you give us like a little list or overview? Like it looks like you have a total of seven. Well, basically I have a whole series on YouTube going through a lot of this stuff, but admittedly it's not my best work. This was when I was kind of learning a lot of these things. So there's a lot of stuff I was a little off on or didn't really understand very well. So if people do want to go through it, I'll give you the series link to that. And then I have a video that summarizes all of the esoteric components called 33 occult aspects of the JFK assassination. And that one, I still kind of feel the same about that, where there's a lot of things I I feel good about, but some things I was off on. So the slides that I'll give a link and you can just put it in the notes and people can go there and go through all of the source reading and everything, that is more in line with where I'm at with it now. And this was all based off of me getting this book by Carl Jung called Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is the mysterious conjunction. It's a book on alchemy and it's part of his collective works it's volume 14 and if anybody is really interested in this i highly recommend you get that it's not super expensive but that is what's missing from my older work on this and that is what will be in all of the slides that i'll give you the link for so with that being said all of the ritual elements that i found have a lot of parallels to everything that we've seen in the jfk presidency up through the apollo 11 moon launch and landing whatever people think about that. I guess I'll also preface that I'm looking at what we've seen to the public from this. So I'm going to follow the official story to parallel all this stuff, but I'm not saying I'm promoting it. I'm just saying that it parallels all this occult stuff. Right. And it actually gives a meaning to why they would put out such a story, because that's kind of where the layering happens. Exactly. So if we go through the the rituals, really the fundamental thing is a death and resurrection ritual of the king. And this goes back to the death and resurrection of Osiris and the story of Isis and Apophis or Set being the murderer of Osiris. There's also a Hiram Abiff component, which is one of the Masonic heroes. Also, Jesus Christ and the more Gnostic viewpoint on death and resurrection as an initiation into the mysteries, something like that. There's also a ritual in the Golden Dawn book by Israel Rigardi. It's the Great of Practicus ritual. It's called The Last Judgment. And the Golden Dawn is heavily affiliated with, you know, like Crowley and Thelema kind of stuff. I'm sure most people know that already. And there's also more Crowley symbolism alluding to the Knight of Pan and the whole Babylon glyph that people have probably seen where there's a bunch of sevens and 77s. And the idea of impregnating the Great Mother through Pan in this weird fertility ritual. And it's about like the death of the ego and crossing the abyss or Da'at. And that's probably something a lot of your listeners are somewhat familiar with as well. So there's a lot of those elements there. And this has a lot of parallels to the Azazel scapegoat ritual in 
Leviticus, and this is in Orthodox Jewish religion, but also Kabbalistic Jewish religion. And as everyone probably knows by now, there's an exoteric, esoteric component to a lot of this stuff. And we're basically focusing on Christianity because that's what a lot of this is revolving around. So that gets into the idea of like the Rosicrucians, the Rosy Cross and Christ and what that means to all of those sort of secret society folk. And then the Carl Jung alchemy parallels. And what Carl Jung really did was he took all these old alchemical writings and he just wrote books and books on them. What's so great about that is you have a world-renowned scholar like who's, you know, a mainstream person. He might be a little controversial, but, you know, he's respected. And he has everything sourced, everything's there. And so if you have somebody who's out in the mainstream and you can look at their work and see this paralleled in all these events, I think that's a great resource because you're not, like, going from some conspiracy site that says everyone and their grandmother's a Freemason. You know what I mean? Like it's more credible to parallel these things to. And that's what I think is so interesting about it. And so that really sums up all of this, but it all revolves around what Crowley calls IO. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's just the letters I A O, which stands for Isis Apophis, which is Typhon or Set and Osiris. That is like the Trinity of, understanding all the secrets in nature and I'll read a little quote from him a little bit later, but those are all the rituals that are sort of at play here. And there are a lot of ties to the Knights Templar with this through Albert Pike. If you read chapter 30, Immortals and Dogma, I think we talked about this on previous discussions, but he says that the death and resurrection of the Knights Templar is reenacted through the ritual of Osiris and Hiram Abith being, you know, killed and resurrected in Freemasonry. And there's a lot of Templar stuff that is encoded into this, and it traces back to the Knights of Malta, the Vatican, and also royal bloodlines like the Plantagenets, and we'll talk about that in relationship to John F. Kennedy and and the presidents. So that's all the ritual components, and then the magic behind it, I guess, if you look to Aleister Crowley philosophy. Actually, I'm just going to read this quote now. I think it will be really helpful to kind of set the tone for all of this. Okay, so this is from Magic and Theory and Practice. I'm not going to read all the page numbers whenever I quote anything, just to keep it simple. It's all in the slides if people want to go to it. But he says that there is a single main definition of the object of all magical ritual. It is the uniting of the microcosm with the macrocosm. The supreme and complete ritual is therefore the invocation of the holy guardian angel. And that's his number 93 or whatever, or Io. Or in the language of mysticism, union with God. So there you go. Above, below, and this is why astrology is so important with all of this. If you can harness that astrological influence and manifest it in below to whatever your idea of this will is, then that would be an act of magic, right? Just by his definition right there. And so he has outlined in this book three main methods of invoking a deity. I'm not going to go through the first two because he says the third method is the most important. He says it's the most attractive of all. And it's the method of the drama, right? The stage, the play. I think this is why they love figures like Shakespeare so much and all of these mythologies, because if you incorporate this into magic, he says, essentially, it's most useful for the foundation of a religion. (laughs) I think he's being a little facetious there, but you can create a whole new religion if you utilize this dramatic method of magic. And he says that it is certainly so to the artist's temperament, for it appeals to his imagination through his aesthetic sense. So basically, you can be very liberal with this dramatic method. You can 
play upon mythologies and, you know, interweave things here and there. And that is a point I really want to highlight because there's so many different rituals that are encoded into this and a lot of themes overlap, but sometimes certain things do or don't fit. But there's enough there that has really profound connections. And that's what I'm going to try to highlight the best I can in this. Right on, man. Yeah, it kind of gets into the the principles and mechanisms behind setting up such a ritual, like as we were kind of talking about before. And you sent me something that says, just to condense what you said, is that any physical or literal component to the ritual is secondary to the primary idea of a spiritual teaching, like the dramatic acting of it is more important than what actually happened. And that kind of gets into the official story versus what actually happened. There might be something behind the scenes, a shooter on the grassy knoll, but we don't worry about that because it doesn't come into play with the ritual we're trying to put out there. That's kind of the, the message. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing because whenever you read a lot of this occult or Freemasonic literature, the allegory is what's important. In fact, the literalism, that's one of the big criticisms of like orthodox religion. When you take things literally, you're profane, right? You're profaning the mysteries. And so... I'll go back to that Crowley quote in a second, but here's a quick quote from Carl Jung in that book. It says, it is evidence from these statements, and he's talking about this dissolution of the king in alchemy, that Gerhard Dorn, which was a 16th century alchemist, understood that the alchemical solution, and this is sort of like the water component of the dissolving, or the baptism component, primarily as a spiritual and moral phenomenon is only secondarily as a physical one. So the spiritual or moral teaching of this alchemical act is most important. And secondarily, it's a physical, the the physical part is what would be considered important. So to sum that up, it's kind of dense reading, but primary importance, the allegory, the story, the teaching, the spiritual mystery, religion, illumination behind it. And the secondary component, well, you know, if it's physical reality, I guess that's cool. (laughs) You know, (laughs) right. So there's quotes, you know, kind of littered throughout a lot of this that always imply that. And so that is one of the things that when you think about stuff like the moon landing, which we can talk about later, because it is tied to a lot of this stuff, basically, because JFK was the one who initiated the idea to us about going to the moon. It doesn't even really matter if it was real or not, because it was the spiritual oneness of seeing the divinely illuminated sphere. And remember, the sphere is of the compass, the spiritual nature and things that are spherical or of deity. We went over this in our first talk. So that kind of outlines that. And it does sort of make sense in a way. It seems weird at first, but if you think of consciousness as primary, like everything derives from consciousness, you can see that affecting the minds of people is way more important than the physical reality. Oh, I I agree. And it is very interesting because I kind of go both ways with this, where I do definitely take the material world to be of a lot of importance. But it is strange when you see like a lot of arguments going on you know, like just take the earth shape debate that's going on right now. There's a lot of weird consciousness shit that goes along with that, where there's like a lot of emotion involved, a lot of personal beliefs. There's a lot of metaphysical things going on with this argument. And people are trying to argue logistics intertwined with that. But I think the underlying current of what's going on is it's very psychological. And that's why I'm fascinated by the whole debate. I don't get involved in it. I don't care what the shape is or isn't. But the observation of everything going on around it is very interesting to me. And it is very much intertwined, I should say, with this esoteric religion as we've gone through in the first few 
discussions. But before we move on, I'll just read this last part from Crowley on this magic. And he says that this dramatic method, he says its disadvantage lies principally in the difficulty of its performance by a single person. So you have to coordinate a bunch of people mm. to make this magic effective. And so that's pretty interesting with all of the JFK assassination stuff and all the people involved. And when you look at some of the backgrounds of some of the people, like Abraham Zapruder was a 33rd degree Freemason. That's just fact <laughs> that, that that's like out in the mainstream. That's not on some conspiracy site. He was. And so it's kind of weird. You think, well, if somebody was a 33rd degree Freemason, they should probably know way more about this kind of stuff than I do because I'm not in a secret society. I'm just a dude reading this stuff. Right. So how can they not notice all the shit that I'm I'm going to be talking about here? <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Like they have to. And, and so when people are just like, oh, you know, like it was chaos that day. I don't really know what happened. And that's their answer. And they're like a Freemason. And they know all of this esoteric stuff. Then I'm just like, hmm. There's something weird about that. Maybe they just were given a title and they don't actually know a lot of this stuff, which I'm sure is the case, or they're just, you know, they're part of it or they're turning a blind eye. That's a whole other discussion, but it is an interesting component to this. Crowley says that, again, this is the type of magic that's most useful for the foundation of a religion. And he says it's the method of Catholic Christianity and consists in the dramatization of the legend of a God. So if you reenact the drama of a legend of a God, that is this most effective method of magic. And to summarize this in the legend, he says that to one who understands this chain of the aeons from the point alike of the sorrowing Isis and of the triumphant Osiris, not forgetting their link in the destroyer Apophis, there remains no secret veiled in nature. He cries that name of God, which throughout history has been echoed by one religion to another, the infinite swelling Paean Io, which is Isis, Apophis, Osiris. He says right there, if you understand the dying, resurrecting Osiris and this destroyer Apophis and this sorrowing Isis, there's no secret veiled in nature. You understand the nature of our reality. So that's pretty interesting because that is really what this whole JFK assassination is featured around is this death and resurrection of Osiris. And there it is right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Man, it does get so dense. It's clear that many mystery cults have rituals that seem to be in play here, or at least seem to have their source material in a lot of mystery cults that seems to be in play with the assassination. And, you know, you mentioned invoking a deity, like this would be the easiest way to do that, according to Crowley. Is that what we think the goal is here? Like, did they invoke some deity? I think the way that at least I understand it is the idea of deity again to the occultist is this wholeness or oneness. So it's almost like we're in the fallen world where things are split into duality, right? So Osiris is the good and Set or Apophis or Typhon is the bad. Now the occultist views them as one and the same. That's just been split, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the secret where the profane see things as good and evil, black and white, whatever, the Masonic checkerboard, that's what represents Earth. And we talked about this, I think, in the last time where Earth is unequilibrated. And that's the goal of the adepts is to equilibrate it to this wholeness of God. And so that unites the entire tree of life, you know, at the top sphere, the first sphere, the one, which contains everything within it. And this gets into the ideas about why the sphere is so important. It's because the center point of the sphere, that's like the beginning or like the dot in the, the, the middle of the circle, the sun glyph, 
And then even uh, I think Kepler talked about this in Copernicus. It's like that shape is the most reflective of their understanding of God or deity because it creates an infinite amount of points on a surface from the center point. And so that's why this oneness or this wholeness is so important. So Isis, Apophis, Osiris all together encapsulates everything in existence. I think that's what it is. But the story and the duality is sort of like for the profane, but the esoteric initiates know it's all comes from this one. And that's part of this illumination of it. And I, I know it sounds really abstract, but this is the viewpoint. And that's kind of the reason I guess it's abstract is so like, you know, I guess, quote unquote, the idiots don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but you could always say that, well, maybe this abstractness is just a guise to manipulate people and it actually isn't a real reflection of the nature of God. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of different arguments, but I guess the point being is that there's some supreme secrets in nature that are being revealed through this JFK assassination, whether we know it or not. And I think that how it gets absorbed in our subconscious, that is really important to them. And this will get into the ideas of the world soul and the chariot, which we'll talk about in a bit. Right on, man. That's a lot of context and it's important. It's important to get that context, but to get into the main topic here, we're also going to upfront talk about the archetypal roles that are in play with the characters in the JFK assassination. Do we want to list those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So again, there's a lot of overlap between different names of deities and whatever, but they'll all sort of represent a similar thing. So JFK plays the role of the king, right? The king of Camelot. This would be like Osiris the Hiram figure, the Christ figure, Christ the King, definitely Apollo because of all the connections with the Apollo 11 rocket obelisk that got shot out into space and Jupiter. And in the Golden Dawn ritual, he's Axieros, which is the male deity in like the Greek Trinity or something like that. And then there's Jackie Kennedy who plays the Isis Mary figure, the virgin moon goddess. And this is Axiokersa in the Greek Trinity in that Golden Dawn ritual. And then there's Oswald, who plays the Apophis, Set, Satan, Saturn, Typhon, the negative duality of Pan aspect. This is like Azazel, the scapegoat, right? And people always call Oswald the patsy or the scapegoat in the conspiracy side of it. And Samael, that's another name. These are all kind of synonymous with each other. And in the Greek pantheon, in that Golden Dawn ritual, he's Axiokersos. So... Those are the three main figures, but there's also another figure of the duality of the Virgin Mary, and this is the Marilyn Monroe archetype, which we'll bring into it later. And she's like the Lilith or the Black Madonna, the Whore of Babylon, Ishtar, the Night Demon kind of thing. And this has interesting parallels to the Daily Plaza event where she has connotations to the ladies in red and black before the kill shot. It's Mary Mormon and Norma Jean Hill. And then Jackie Kennedy has this rosemary quality, and there's a, a girl named Rosemary Willis at the beginning. And there's interesting color motifs that go with this. And I'm not going to get into it now, but we'll discuss it a little bit later. But those are the four main figures where it's like you have a duality of the male, JFK and Oswald, and you have a duality of the female, Jackie and Marilyn. And then there's also this interesting concept of Apollo and Diana being twins, and having something to do with the sun and the moon. And Princess Diana had a lot of strange parallels to JFK's death, which we can get into a little bit later. And if she's the twin of Apollo and JFK is considered this Apollo sun figure, then 
that's pretty profound right there. And so this idea of this Diana or this virgin moon goddess, you have to play with the archetype where Jackie Kennedy can represent it or the moon luminary itself, right? The idea of going to the moon. Man has never been to the moon. The moon is untouched. It is virgin, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So this virgin birth and this impregnation of this rocket that looks like an obelisk, you know, there's this weird fertility thing that always goes on with this impregnation and birthing anew. And through this alchemy, you're trying to purge this lower nature or this dead weight or the prima materia that is the lead of Saturn. And lastly, they're not people, but they're just figures is the chariot. That's the vessel. So we have a JFK limousine chariot, which we'll talk about later. And Diana, obviously, she had a car crash in a modern day chariot. Hmm. And then the uh, Apollo 11 rocket itself, that's like Apollo's chariot going into the sky, right? In the mythology, Apollo in the chariot is important. And that's what the chariot tarot card is about. And then lastly, we have Daily Plaza, which is just essentially the Freemasonic Temple, the Tree of Life. That is the temple where a lot of this ritual basically started and created like this first impregnation incarnation of all of this stuff. And so... Those are all the key figures that will kind of play upon and manifest the details from them as we go through. Right on. And so something else I wanted to throw out there about Pan and Oswald, just from your slides that I thought was really interesting. Oswald means divinely powerful God of the forest in English, (laughs) which is like exactly Pan. And then he is a scapegoat. And uh, I guess in the motif, the scapegoat usually kind of goes away in a way that's very familiar to the way Oswald kind of just went away as he was shot on TV out of nowhere. And also, I guess, in the classic motif, the scapegoat is usually thrown off a cliff, according to the slide, which Oswald lived in Oak Cliff, which Oak, again, harkens back to the forest, and Cliff is right there. So I guess if that throwing off the cliff and going away in a in a sudden fashion are in that original archetypal motif they definitely are in play with oswald yeah when you look at the etymology and just the words themselves we know that they love using the the gematria of words and things like that i mean that's just esoteric 101 with a lot of this stuff but a word invokes things right if you think like oak or forest that paints a whole picture in your mind right it's like what a tarot card is a tarot card encodes thousands of words into an image, right? And that is one of the reasons why they use the archetypal world because in the highest sphere of Kabbalah, this is like the highest level of consciousness in our, you know, visible universe. That is the archetypal world, the world of absolute. And so if you're going to try to impact consciousness in the most profound way, you'd use the highest sphere, right? So the archetypal world. And that's why the Zodiac and all these archetypes of all of these myths and gods and goddesses are extremely important to the psyche. And so if you use certain words and you know what they kind of allude to, then you can see what sort of archetype they might be invoking here. And since you mentioned Pan and Oswald, I'll get into a couple of things on it. If you read The Death of Daphnis, I think that's how you pronounce it. That's a poem about Pan. And that is where there's a a certain book. I think the author's name is Kala Trobe, she's sort of an occultist. She writes about invoking different archetypes and invoking the pan archetype. This is taken from the poem. You would invoke him through 
sloping hillocks, as she puts it, or sloping hills, like a grassy knoll, right? (laughs) And oak trees, and there were oaks in Daly Plaza, and then obviously oak cliff, right? So you're combining the, the scapegoat of the cliff with the oak of Pan. Also, there's other interesting allusions to elm trees. So Elm Street, and I think there were oak elms in the plaza. Again, it's hard to go back and find what the actual trees were because that was, you know, 50 something years ago. But I I found some resources that will tell you certain vegetation and and trees in there even give a lot of meaning to this ritual. There are pyrocantha bushes and pyrocantha is fire thorn and that indicates judgment in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of weird stuff just by the trees they fucking planted, (laughs) you know, and it's 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 so coordinated and strange. And so. This idea of pan, and if I think the resource I used was just like one of those baby naming sites, and it says right on there, Oswald means it's like the power of God, divinely powerful God of the forest, or I don't know, something to do with the divine power. And that is what Azazel means. It means to be fierce or to be angry or the divine wrath of God. And that's what the ritual's for, the elimination of wrath of God. And it atones for sexual iniquity. And this gets into the whole Marilyn Monroe thing. I don't want to go too off into that tangent just yet, but you're right. Like, there's a lot of weird forest, Azazel, Samael, earthly demon stuff that alludes to Oswell. And if you look in his astrology, it's also reflected there in his, his moon. Really quickly, I'll just throw it in there. His moon is in Capricorn and his ascendant is Cancer. So that just means that the moon becomes extremely important to the uh, ruler of your ascendant sign. So, his Capricorn moon is very important, and it's also conjunct one of these angles in the west, and the west is where the sun sets, right? So this moon in Capricorn, which is ruled by Saturn, these are all archetypes of Set or Typhon, the dark half of Osiris. Hmm. And you mentioned kind of the death and resurrection ritual. Of course, JFK wasn't resurrected, so I guess for people who might be confused where resurrection is embodied in this assassination event, is that where it gets into the moon landings? The eternal flame lighting. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. For this alchemy part, I guess we can go into like the Carl Jung stuff here because this is really where this all takes place. Yeah, definitely. Let's go into the Carl Jung stuff because I think that's a little bit even more surprising that that's so embodied. When you mentioned it to me, you said it could almost be like a script for the event. In Jung's book, he has this section called Rex and Regina, the King and the Queen. He essentially talks about this transformation of the king. It's taking this lower nature of Osiris or this beast nature and you purge it in a ritual and you renew or rebirth the king in a more spiritual or divine form. What the flame represents in Kabbalah and all this stuff is the Hebrew letter Sheen, that's the divine flame. And it's associated with the 20th card of tarot, which is judgment. Really, how the Daily Plaza Tree of Life allegory plays into this is that on every pathway on the Tree of Life, to get a visual, just go to the slides and you'll, you'll see a lot of different ways I outlined how it transposes. The pathway that JFK was assassinated on, if you put the correspondence is the judgment path and that is the tarot card of judgment that this golden dawn ritual is completely based around it's specifically designed for this pathway and it's all about 
the triangle of fire going upon the initiate or the king to be transformed, right? And so that is what the eternal flame is. It's the Hebrew letter sheen, the divine flame, the triple flame. And so when you light that symbolically, you are resurrecting the divine spiritual essence of the person. Their, their physical body has died and now the spirit lives on. So whatever the spirit was of the JFK assassination for the occultists, that is what lives on. And the virgin, the ISIS mourning motif of Jackie Kennedy is she's the one who lit the eternal flame initially. And the queen is part of the one who resurrects Osiris in these rituals. And you can see it with the idea of Juno and the peacock. The peacock has some sort of association to the phoenix rising. It's sort of like, I guess, like this feminine aspect of it. So that is part of the resurrection. And I do think that the Apollo 11 launch is another component of that. Fair enough. And you also have a slide showing similarities between Dealey Plaza and not only just the Tree of Life, but also just a map of ancient Babylon. And that interests me because so much of the symbolism and the elite's ritual performances show a certain obsession with Babylon and all the Sumerian stuff. I guess we're talking about the Euphrates River and Trinity River and how eerily similar they are. If you go to Morals and Dogma and you read some of Albert Pike, he basically talks about the latitude-longitude coordinates of ancient Babylon. Albert Pike says that Babylon was located on the 32-degree 30 north latitude line, and Daly Plaza is on that same exact latitude line. So it's just shy of 33rd degree of latitude. And obviously, 32 degrees and 33 degrees are important in Freemasonry in terms of morals and dogma. It goes all the way up to 32 degrees, and then the 33rd degree is that honorary degree. So it is interesting how ancient Babylon is on this degree for north, and so is Daly Plaza. And then the other parallel is that he talks about the Euphrates running from southeast to northwest, or vice versa. What this river does is it gives uncertain terror and disaster through flooding and overflowing. So if you look back into the history of Dallas and the Trinity River, well, the river flows southeastward. So the same way that the Euphrates runs, the same exact direction. It's on the same parallel line of latitude. And they talked about all this flooding that happened back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And George Daly, the one who obviously Daly Plaza is named after, and he was also a 33rd degree Freemason and Knight Templar. And that is like official history. He's the one who had the idea of taming this flooding with a bridge. I don't know if he was actually part of the bridge that got built, but he was one who initiated the idea. So it's interesting. You have an initiate of the mystery taming this lower nature of the nature God. You know, Osiris has this connection to like the flooding of the Nile. And that's like the lower nature that's like the set aspect. That's the darker part of nature, right? Terror and disaster, right? That's all the set turning and archetype. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting. Like he's the one who set out to tame that lower nature and get a bridge there and utilize Promethean technology. And again, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that throw it in with all of this esoteric theology and it's kind of interesting. But point being, same parallel line, same direction of the river and the same behavior of the river and it's also called the Trinity River. And there's a lot of etymology of Dallas and Daly having to do with 
the Bonadea goddess and fertility and basically everything that's in the Empress card in tarot. And the actually the uh, Empress card in tarot, it's for the Hebrew letter Dalit. So think about like Dalit, mm-hmm. Dallas. It's very similar. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And if you break down Dea, right, goddess, and then Lee or Lay, if you look up etymology for that, it's all having to do with livestock, pastures, grazing, grassland. Also, there's a Spanish component where it's the law. And if you look at some of the goddess figures in tarot, you have the justice goddess of the law and you have the empress goddess with all of the grassland surrounding her. And the justice card is for Libra, which is ruled by Venus. And the empress card is for the planet Venus. So there's this Venusian fertility aspect to a lot of this. And Dallas comes from Scottish etymology, meaning meadow dwelling. So you have all of this weird meadow goddess symbolism encoded just into these these names. And then you throw in the Babylon parallels and you had the idea of the Bonadea and Faunus or Pan fertility rituals in ancient Rome. And you have all this Pan stuff with Oswald. You're just completing this circle of fertility rituals and Pan and nature. So it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, it is strange. And, you know, you mentioned that Kennedy was the king, you know, or the king of Camelot. Is there anything more we should say about making that connection symbolically? Because then it gets into, you know, the chariot and the tower of destruction and the king being, quote unquote, decrowned. This is really foundational to this, actually. If you think about what happened after the assassination, he was called the king of Camelot. And Jackie Kennedy is the one who basically coined that term. And so this epithet is like famous and i have a slide where it just shows all of the tabloids talking about life in camelot jfk's camelot remembering camelot camelot lives it's just like all over and just think about how much all of these tabloid magazines flood the consciousness of the people at large and there's even a a magazine that says america's royal family is the kennedys and that's kind of one of these names that people will give them if you take the whole study of the idea of that little girl who did the genealogy of all the presidents going back to the Plantagenets, it's basically saying that all the presidents are related to, I think it's King John of England. So they're of the Plantagenet line. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. There's a lot of people that debate it, but it was in a mainstream news article. So again, you put it out to the mass consciousness and they will absorb that. And so everyone's thinking, oh, all these presidents are actually royalty. What a interesting thing. And so if you look into Camelot in esoteric theology, Manly Palmer Hall talks about it, but he sources back to this guy named Hargave Jennings, who is a cultist who wrote a book about the Rosicrucians. And he basically sources from him and Blavatsky sources from him too. He's got some interesting stuff in his book about the round table of King Arthur and how it connects to King Henry VIII. And he was like a union of the bloodlines of, it was the, the Lancaster and the House of Lancaster and House of York. This is the Tudor Rose where the the white rose is the House of York and the red rose is the House of Lancaster. And it's all embodied in this unity of bloodlines in Henry VIII. And Henry VIII is depicted on this round table in the Winchester Castle in Britain. So this Camelot theme of the round table, right? King Arthur and the round table, esoterically sources back to the Plantagenet line that is the house of Plantagenet that these these lines are from. And I'm not an expert on bloodlines. I'm just I just did some basic research to just figure out where it all lines up with. And so this goes all the way up through to the current royal family. 
if he's the king of Camelot and there's all this esoteric stuff that traces back to the Rosicrucians, Knights of Malta, and the Templars, which apparently have some sort of vested interest in these bloodlines, I guess, that's really strange considering there's all this weird Rosicrucian symbolism throughout this event and Templar symbolism. I mean, just think about the rosy cross that's from the cross, the barren cross, the flower comes. That's like the resurrection, right? And, you know, Christ on the cross. It's all about the Gnostic understanding of Jesus Christ and unlocking the kingdom of God and whatever. So there's some very weird esoteric stuff that flows through all of this. And to summarize it, basically Camelot and esoteric teachings just sums back to the Gnostics, the Nazarenes, the Essenes, the Johannite Gnostics. Those are the ones that Albert Pike talks about as being the good guys of the Knights Templar in chapter 30 of Morals and Dogma that try to overthrow the Orthodox Catholic Church and secretly infiltrate. And all the Templar and Rosicrucian stuff coincides with this. And like I said, George Daly was a Knight Templar. Now, Knight Templar, there's a lot of esoteric people that kind of bitch about how people who say they're Templars don't really understand the mysteries. But that's the same thing with Freemasonry. You know, all of the Blue Lodge, Albert Pike says they only get the exoteric Freemasonry where the super secret adepts, they have the true history of all that. And so this all sources back to that through this Camelot mythology. It's very strange how they're throwing down the mainstream that Kennedy's tied to the Plantagenes. So I just think that's really weird. So he's definitely a king in the eyes of the people through archetype. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I'm glad we added that little bit of context. And another interesting thing from your slides is the idea of a person's life path number and how to find meaning from that in tarot cards. And the number is derived from your birthday or the day of an event. And when you do the numerology of JFK's birthday and the day of the assassination, they both break down to the same number and corresponding tarot cards, which is pretty significant, isn't it? Yeah, this thing is like, now you can take the cards at face value here. <laughs> it's very interesting where I'll just explain the esoteric understanding of this. Your life path is broken down through your birthday. So my life path, if you add up all the numbers of my birthday, sums to 26. And so what you do is you, you reduce that two plus six equals eight. So my life path is eight. But with tarot cards, the Trump tarot cards, they go up to 21. There's 22 cards, but zero is the fool. So if you have a number that breaks down to 21 or less, then you can incorporate tarot cards with this. So what, how you would do that is if I break down to an eight, the counterpart to eight is 17 because 17, one plus seven equals eight. So there's like a duality here or a polarity on in a way. And so what it is, is card eight in esoteric tarot and the, the cards I use just a quick thing I use the BOTA deck which is Paul Foster Case's deck I just happen to like that deck and he's got a great book on it so if anybody looks at the slides that's the one I'm using but either way eight is the card for strength which is for the zodiac sign of Leo now the counterpart card card 17 is the star and that's the card for Aquarius now on the zodiac Leo and Aquarius are opposite so you can see this through the card and the tarot cards are just a cycle through the zodiac when you get to the first card that is a zodiac sign, it's the emperor, Aries. And then the last one is the moon, which is for Pisces, card 18. And then the other cards represent planets or elements. So that is what the tarot trumps are. It's a cycle through a solar year and through the 12 signs of the zodiac. So to bring it back to JFK, what happens is this life path is supposed to be karmic or fated or have a sense of destiny. 
So you might break down to a life path card. You might look at your birth chart and see where the card represents something in your chart. So you could say that, well, if my life path breaks down to eight, that's the card for Leo. So the sun rules Leo. So look at the sun in my chart. And it's interesting. My sun's on my ascendant and it makes it very important. So a lot of interesting stuff can happen from that. But with JFK, his life path cards break down to the chariot and the tower. And his life path adds up to 34. Three plus four is seven. The counterpart of seven is 16 because one plus six equals seven. So those are his life path cards. This indicates a sense of destiny or, or purpose or something that you would fulfill. Now, if you look at the cards, it's the king and his chariot. And then the tower card is having the crown or head shot off and the king and queen are falling. And what really happened at Daily Plaza, JFK is in a modern day chariot in a limousine and he had his crown shot off and the king and queen were in it. So if you just take it at face value, it's very strange how those are his life path cards. Now the 1122 event adds up to the same exact cards. That's pretty interesting. And Blavatsky also says the number of Apollo is seven. I cover this in my occult science series. And so the chariot is card seven. That's Apollo in his chariot or Osiris, the sun god, right? And so all of this Apollo 11 connection to JFK with the idea of telling us we're going to the moon and stuff like that. There's a lot of interesting things. And the chariot is the card for cancer, which is the sign ruled by the moon. And so there's a lot of interesting karmic stuff. I mean, you don't have to believe in all this destiny or karma stuff, but I'm just saying like esoterically, that's what these things indicate. And so Princess Di, her life path breaks down to the same, the chariot and the tower. Now she died a tower-like event in a chariot where her car ran into the 13th pillar, right? 13, like the death card or the, the, the Templar number. So her life path is the same exact life path as John F. Kennedy and Apollo's twin is Diana. And so that kind of, it says a lot with these life path numbers. And I think it's very interesting when you start applying some of them where Jackie Kennedy's life path is the high priestess. The high priestess is the virgin moon goddess, right? The, 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 the Isis Mary figure. The counterpart to the high priestess is the justice goddess because the high priestess is card two. So card 11 is justice. So 11, one plus one equals two. But either way, if you break it down strictly to the, the single digit life path card, John F. Kennedy's card is the king of the chariot and Jackie Kennedy is the high priestess virgin. And so those are part of the archetypes that I laid out at the beginning. <laughs> Man, I just think it's amazing how these different systems all sort of apply like i guess tarot astrology the tree of life these are all like blueprints for reality or the simulation we're in to some degree i know there's just a ton of astrological significance and i think sometimes that can be the hardest to conceptualize for people but you gave me a really good baseball analogy would you mind breaking that down because i think the point you make about the bases could be a real aha moment for people who struggle with figuring that stuff out. Yeah, well, it's not a perfect analogy, but it sort of outlines the understanding of the chart angles. And people probably heard like the four angels representing the cardinal directions. Well, this is what a birth chart is. And a birth chart or an astrology chart is essentially a Masonic temple because there's all directions that correspond to important things that correspond to the tree of life. 
And I guess going through this, I can bring this back to the Daily Plaza connection. But basically, you have your ascendant sign, your descendant sign, and that is the horizon axis. So your ascendant is the eastern horizon, whatever constellation is there when you're born, that's your ascendant sign. Now, if you have a planet there, that makes it really important because it's kind of like the sun rises in the east, right? So that's like you as a person rising into life, right? And this rising sign filters throughout your entire chart. That's sort of like part of the root or core of you and all of your facets of life. So if you're, let's say I'm, I'm Mike in my office job, or I'm Mike in my one-on-one relationship with somebody, or I'm Mike at home with my family, there's going to be a part of my ascendant that incorporates into all of those things and how I interact in those different situations. So that is sort of like the eastern part. And then the the southern part component is the midheaven. And so this is when the sun is at noontime. And so that is the direction of the south, or at least in the northern hemisphere. So everything I'm talking about here is if you're born in the northern hemisphere. But either way, it still applies. And so the sun is like exalted in the heavens, right? It's its highest strength. And then in the west, that's where the sun sets. So now it's going away from mankind and obviously the whole set sinking into darkness. And at the northern part of the ecliptic, that is where it's nighttime. And so this mimics a solar year as well, where the east would be like the spring equinox. The south or the midheaven would be like the summer solstice. The west or where the sun sets is like the fall, right? The fall of man into the material realm. And then the north is like the winter solstice. I kind of relate it to the basis of a baseball field where these points are just points where things can manifest, where you have home plate, first base, second base, third base. Those don't have any power in and of themselves. They're just points on a field. The players have the power. So the players are like the planets. They give power to things. But where most of the stuff manifests will be at these bases, especially home plate. Right. That's where everything starts. Everything filters through whatever happens at home plate where the batter hits something or whatever. So that home plate to me is kind of like your ascendant. It filters through the entire event of whatever happens when that pitch is thrown or something like that. Now, again, it's not a perfect analogy, but it just shows you that these points are sensitive where things can manifest. So. What it really means is that if there's something on the eastern horizon, on the ascendant, meaning for me, my son is on the ascendant when I was born, it means I was born in the morning. And so my son is a couple degrees away from the horizon. So that makes my son really important in my chart because simply it's on that point that's sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so this is what happens in a lot of these events where the moon launch, they had the moon on the ascendant. Mm-hmm. Now, This is a small window of time. And the the closer it is to the ascendant degree, the more powerful it will be. So if something is within, I don't know, three, four, five degrees of the ascendant, that's going to be very powerful. And then the further it moves away, the less power it has. And then you don't even consider it. So there's really like a 30 minute window to put the moon on the ascendant, depending on wherever you're located or what day it is. So it's very interesting how... NASA made sure that that moon was on the ascendant when the launch happened. And you have to get the the correct time to get the chart right. But very interesting. Now, Saturn was on the ascendant when JFK was assassinated. And what's Saturn? Death, fear, anxiety, chaos, all those sorts of things in its negative sense. So 
they definitely put it a specific place there or whatever put it there. I don't know. Same thing with 9-11. Mercury was on the ascendant and Mercury is the sign that rules the twins, Gemini. <laughs> and Saturn was in Gemini and there was a Saturn return. And if people want to get more into the 9-11 part of that, I did a talk with Sage Equay recently. You can just go to his channel. And a lot of the same concepts I'm talking about here in this talk apply to that one as well. Again, you have to plan something pretty well to put something on one of these points. Now, the other sensitive point is the midheaven. That's like the highest heavens. And that, that has some sort of idea of fate or destiny too. It's what you strive to achieve to get closer to your divine potential. And I don't want to get too much into astrology because I could just talk all day on it, but that's like the basic understanding of it. So some of these people and these figures have very interesting correlations to these angles and what planets are placed on them based on their archetype. I'll give two more quick examples. Marilyn Monroe has Lilith on her ascendant and it's right smack dab there. And there's actually three different Lilith components to a chart. There's a mean Lilith and there's a true Lilith. I don't exactly know how those work. Those are actually just points too. But then there's an asteroid Lilith and all of her Liliths, there's three different things, all correspond in a very strange way. And you'd have to go through the slides to see it. But basically that just makes her the temptress, the sexual seductress. And that filters through her entire psyche or life because Lilith is on the ascendant. How weird is that? You know, <laughs> and then Jackie Kennedy has Juno on the ascendant. And there's a lot of stuff in Carl Jung talking about the queen, right? She's the queen having to do with Juno and the peacock. And that's part of what resurrects Osiris and this like feminine component to it. So she has Juno right on the ascendant. Once you look at some of these lesser known things in astrology and you look at the archetypes of all this stuff, it's what Crowley said, as above, so below macrocosm with microcosm. It seems like these things are obviously being utilized when you look at the symbology. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's like the ones and zeros of reality. It's like analyzing the deep code. And I just think the baseball analogy is pretty good because there's an infinite number of places these things can be and a chart can be overwhelming. And you're like, well, how can one place be more important than another? But if you look at the game of baseball, it's pretty perfect. I mean, there can be events in a game that happen anywhere around that diamond, but those bases are obviously the most important points. When something happens near a base, it's of heightened importance to the overall game. So I don't know. I just thought that was really good. And another thing I wanted to ask you about was the Vatican and the Templars and this possible connection, because I have heard a lot of people recently talking about how they feel the Jesuits were responsible at the heart of the JFK assassination. I think it's a huge Pandora's box of covert operations and groups and probably aligned interests, but it's an interesting chapter in that story. I mean, what can you say about that? What's the deal here with the Vatican and any possible Templar connections? Like I've said before, I think reading Albert Pike's chapter, Morals and Dogma, chapter 30 on the Knights Templar, I recommend people do that. It's not a very long chapter, but again, the premise is that Pike uses a letter by a Catholic Orthodox sympathizer and he tells the story of the Templars. Now, Pike says this guy basically is profane, but he lets him tell the story and Pike interjects when there is, I guess, disinfo or, you know, whatever. So this is the lesson of that chapter to use your enemies to your advantage. I'm going to let this Catholic priest who I think is profane tell the story because I don't want to do all that work telling the story, but I'll just interject where he's got it wrong and the mystery tradition has it right. 
And so that is an interesting concept with all of this, where these adepts use their enemies as their greatest asset. So you could say, if you want to paint JFK as a hero, have they used him as an asset, you know, with all the Apollo 11 stuff it launched from Kennedy Space Center, JFK Airport. He I mean, he's like, he's a hero still to this day. That's something you have to reconcile with when you look at all this. Like, well, why is he so cool? And the, you know, the quote unquote Illuminati run everything. Is it because he was just a part of it and played a role and this was all fake? Or was he an enemy and they're using him? So this kind of ties into this mythology. I don't know what to think about it. You can think whatever you'd like about it. But one thing that's very strange is people talk about the Jesuits a lot. And I don't know how to reconcile this. I'm just throwing it out there. Blavatsky and Pike and all these esoteric people, they don't like the Jesuits. They think the Jesuits suck. But Blavatsky kind of puts them in the category of sort of the Orthodox. So that's something that I'm just very confused upon. But again, it's sort of like, well, when you're in an esoteric society, you can pretend to be orthodox, but you're really sneaking in the mystery religion. And that's the whole point of that chapter in Morals and Dogma. So I don't really want to get into a labeling thing here with that. But (laughs) as far as Albert Pike talks about, the Templars have the true secret of Jesus Christ, which is the Gnostic Johannite allegory. And that is the truth about spirituality or the mystery religion. And so that was the point of that story where they tried to infiltrate the Catholic Church in its orthodox sense, figured it out, and then they persecuted all the Templars, rounded them up and all this stuff. So how this relates to the Vatican in its current form, there's a lot of number stuff, but it's pretty interesting. Albert Pike says that the death and resurrection of Osiris is the death and resurrection of the Knights Templar, the true Templars, right? And so John F. Kennedy is part of this death and resurrection of Osiris. And the Templar's goal was to infiltrate orthodox or demiurge, quote unquote, institutions like government or monarchy or the papal authority. Then it's very strange that there's a lot of Templar symbolism on and everybody accuses that this was the event that the Illuminati infiltrated the United States government. Again, this is all like the hearsay about it. I'm not saying that this happened or not. But the dates are very interesting how all this matches up. And I have a video in my occult science series If people want to go more into this. It's video 28.1, the Vatican Sea and the Templar Resurrection. So to source this, just go watch that video. But the, the essence of it is that the Templars sort of formed with the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights of Malta in 1113 AD. Now, the Vatican had a 900-year celebration in 2013 for the Knights of Malta. And so that corresponds with that year that they were formed. Now, the Templar persecution happened in the 1300s, if you believe the official chronology. And obviously, the Friday the 13th thing was important. But also, this is really strange. On 1122, the date of the assassination, in 1307, all the Christian monarchs ordered to arrest the Templars and confiscate their lands in the name of Pope Clement. And that same day... Jacques de Molay retracted his confession before the Pope. So on the same day JFK was assassinated, an important thing happened in the history of the Templars. Two important things. Hmm. And the same day. Yeah. <laughs> and add 1122 together, it's 33, right? The parallel on which the assassination took place and hits Babylon. Yeah. And then the 22, 22 represents the 22 cards of tarot, the 22 pathways in the tree of life. And 11 is the two pillars, right? So 
just encoded that date is reflected in Daly Plaza. And then fast forward to 1313. This is the year that Jacques de Molay was executed according to esoteric philosophy. Now, the, the historians will say 1314, but Blavatsky states that the true Templars, their secrets are vested in meeting every 13 years at Malta, 13 in number, commemorating the year of the death of Jacques de Molay in 1313. And she says what they do is they plan the future religious and political fates of nations at these meetings, right? Hmm. These are the true Templars, according to Blavatsky. And she also says that this degree of morals and dogma represents the revenge of the Templars. And so if we have a papal decree on 1122, order the Templars be taken out by the quote-unquote Orthodox Christian demiurge institution, did we have a revenge of the Templars on 1122 to commemorate that date? And now they're infiltrating like the government or something. And my question is, if you go into the, the Kabbalah of Scorpio and the tarot card of death card 13, because 13 obviously is like the Templar number. If you take the Hebrew numbers associated with it, the Hebrew letter noon is assigned to this card. So there's always a value to Hebrew letters. Now some have two as a final value. So noon has two. It is the value of 50 and the value of 700. What's very interesting is. 2013, when we had this big Templar or Malta celebration, that was the year 50 years later of the JFK assassination. So that's a Kabbalistic number for the Templars, 50 years. Also, think about the year 1313, right? That was the the big year of the Templars basically being taken out. There's a Templar prophecy. I'll read a quick quote, and you can go to my series, talk about this is from the Knights Templar website. Now, again, this could be sort of exoteric, but... There's very interesting stuff going on with it where they say that the plan of the temple was successfully implemented on April in 2013 ahead of schedule to fulfill this Cathar prophecy of 1313 AD based on the ancient Prince Melchizedek scroll of the Essenes. Now, Pike talks about the Essenes being intertwined with the Gnostic Templars. So there's this prophecy from the year 1313. It says in 700 years, the laurel will grow green again. Now, if you add 700 years to 1313 AD, it's 2013 when we had this big Knights of Malta celebration. So my question is, is this an esoteric revealing to the world that they finally infiltrated the Vatican or they have, but now it's out in the open? It's very strange when you look through all these dates and this is getting a little long winded. I'll just wrap it up with this. Pope Francis's inauguration celebration was on March 13th, 313, right? (laughs) <laughs> now, the esoteric date of Jacques de Molay's execution, according to Blavatsky, is March 19th. And so if you add that up, it's the third month. Three plus one plus nine, that equals 13. It's the celebration of Pope Francis's inauguration, if you add the year. So if March 13th, 2013, add that all up, that equals 13. And again, this is the year 2013. So all of these weird dates add up with the Templars, their story in 1313, the JFK assassination, and the Knights of Malta celebration in 2013. And remember, Camelot goes back to all of that, the Malta, Rosicrucian, and Templar stuff. Hmm. To top it all off, I'll finish it with this. The Vatican took a painting that was done where it mimics Paeta of Michelangelo, where it's the virgin holding the dead sun god christ in her lap some guy made a painting of jfk dead in jackie kennedy's lap and if she's already this 
Isis Mary virgin goddess holding the slain lion or lamb, whatever you want to call it, in her lap. This is a painting that the Vatican now has at their museum. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? Right. Very on the nose. So there's just so much Vatican Templar stuff surrounding all of this death and resurrection. And again, I just hearken back to the point where Albert Pike says that the ritual death and resurrection of Osiris represents the Templars being resurrected from their original persecution, 1313, not to mention frame 313 is the kill shot. Hmm. Right. Frame 313. I mean, we're talking about an individual frame of a video. This kind of precision is just insane. The connections are unbelievable from the 33rd parallel to the similarities of the topography of Babylon and Dealey Plaza, the fucking overlay of the tree of life, the numerology, the astrology, Carl Jung's archetypes, the ritual similarities to mystery cults. It's no small thing. Yeah, I hear you. And, you know, we could go through uh, more of Carl Jung's alchemy because that will outlie a lot of this Rosicrucian type symbolism from the Zapruder film. Sure. Again, this whole idea of the alchemy of the king and queen is this is the central theme here. And one thing that Carl Jung talks about is this idea of the king and queen as two lions. They are these lions that sort of devour each other in this way that they fight and then they copulate. So basically, they're at odds with each other and then they're, you know, making up and having sex, right? Or whatever. This is kind of this theme. And he talks about how there's this erotic animal nature to this theme of this lion. And the lion is the king, right? I mean, we know that. And so there's all this weird tabloid stuff. I kind of looked it up in passing, but it's pretty funny how like there's this copulating and bickering theme between Jackie Kennedy and John F. Kennedy. And this represents the serpent of the caduceus where they separate and then they synthesize, separate and synthesize. That is what the lions bickering and then copulating represents. It's just the same motif. And so there's all these weird tabloids about like Jackie wants to divorce him because he's unfaithful. And then there's like a tabloid about how before the night of the assassination, they had like sex on Air Force One, join the Mile High Club. This is all tabloid shit. But again, this stuff goes out to the masses. So the masses see them as like this bickering couple in a way. Mm -hmm. And it represents these lions and alchemy. Now, to take that a step further, there's this interesting, this is like what's so strange about Marilyn Monroe's role in all this. Now, it's no secret that Marilyn Monroe has some sort of mythology with John F. Kennedy. Whether they had an affair or not, I don't know. But that has like been circulating throughout tabloids ever since that era. I mean, you could still see like magazines running stories on it nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. There's this concept in alchemy in Carl Jung's writings, one about the whore. And he says, this is a direct quote. He says, the whore or the meritrix is a well-known figure in alchemy. So think about like mare. A tricks, that's the Latin word for whore, I believe. So, mare, Marilyn, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of wordplay going on. Right. And he says that Venus or the whore corresponds to the erotic aspect of the lion, who in turn is an attribute of the king. So, something about this beast nature of the king has to do with this whore. And if you look on the tarot card for strength, you have the virgin goddess taming this lion beast. It's like the red lion, which represents the, the male animal nature, right? But that can go through the female because 
it's just this expression of the same force. That's what the whole idea about the active and passive thing is. So this this duality is kind of like Jung's anima animus thing where, you know, every man has this feminine counterpart kind of thing. It's all of this like psychological stuff. And that is really what is fundamental to all of this alchemical stuff. It's very psychological. It's about consciousness and the nature of awareness. That's what all of this stuff sort of represents. So when you're messing with that stuff, that's what is sort of incorporated into all this magic and the idea of manipulating consciousness. So we have this whore of Babylon kind of motif with Marilyn Monroe. And again, she had Lilith on the Ascendant, which basically throws the Lilith archetype of the sexual temptress demon in Judaism into all of this. And some people will probably be familiar with like the pentagrams in some ritual magic. There's one pointed up, which is Adam and Eve unifying. And that would be like Osiris and Isis, right? Jackie and John. And then there's the pentagram down, which is Lilith and Samael. Now, Samael is one of the epithets for Set or Typhon or Lee Harvey Oswald. So that's like the dark half. So there's the Oswald and Monroe component in that downward pointed pentagram. And then there's the Jackie and John and the upward pointed, right? And so you kind of unite the two in this weird alchemical way. And so he says that the lion has an unmistakable erotic aspect to it. And so that essentially is the Marilyn Monroe archetype. Now, this is where I think it gets even more interesting. There's a, a part in this alchemy of the king, which he calls the, the lion hunt. And this lion hunt, he says, is the love affair, which is projected onto the lion. So this animal nature or arescent soul, which is expanding soul, and that's an attribute of Jupiter, the king, expansion. In other words, it is enacted in his unconscious or in a dream because of its ambiguous character. The lion is well suited to take over the role of this indecorous lover. So this lion, which is very interesting, Marilyn Monroe's ascendant is in Leo. So you're mixing the lion with this Lilith whore on her chart. So she's got a lion component to her. And then Jackie Kennedy has a lot of Leo stuff going on. So there's this weird lion thing going on with Jackie and Marilyn in astrology. And so if this love affair is projected onto this lion and it's unified with the king, you can see how all of these themes are going on astrologically and through this sort of mythology. Now, I think what's most important here is he says this love affair is enacted in the unconscious or a dream. Again, my question is, is that just something that can be an alternate fantasy? And so this is the idea of him having an affair of Marilyn Monroe. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. This idea of this dream of this affair is part of this alchemy. Mm -hmm. And so that harkens back to, does it really matter if it happened or not, if it floods the mass consciousness that it probably did? And the last point I'll make with this, I'll read another quote. There's a trap that's set for the king. And he says, in the lion hunt, the lion, as we've seen, takes the place of the king. Marcos, which I think is just a character in this, this alchemical text, prepares a trap and the lion, attracted by the sweet smell of a stone that is obviously an eye charm, falls into it and is swallowed by the magic stone. And this stone, which the lion loves, is a woman. The lion, therefore, falls like a bridegroom into the bridal chamber where the magic stone that is, quote, good for the eyes and is a woman lies on a bed of coals. So this trap for this lion is a woman who is attractive to the eyes and he falls into it, into this marriage union with her. That's kind of like the happy birthday, Mr. President performance. And the other thing that's interesting is Marilyn Monroe was born just a couple days after John Kennedy. So their sons are conjunct. 
And the sun is the lion, right? That Leo is ruled by the sun. And so it's interesting how they chose her to be the one who sang with all of this lion, whore, king stuff going on in alchemy. So it's just, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's like it's following a script. (laughs) Yeah, it's so deep. And another thing I wanted to point out that's a complete tangent. I should have mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Crowley and his Kabbalistic numbers of significance. But you mentioned that in one of the slides... The biggest numbers of significance to him were 11, 77, 93, of course, and 175. And those all just happen to be the flight numbers involved on 9-11. Yeah. I mean, 175 is just one of the books. So it's part of the, I think, one of the invocations of a deity, the other methods. But if you look at his Babylon glyph, which is the star pointed down right into the material, this is part of the idea of alchemy where you're poisoning the material. You're intentionally making it dark or you're intentionally going to this animal nature as part of this death and rebirth. And this is all part of the night of Pan and stuff. And Pan, again, it's like a lusty, sexual, phallic god. And so we have these numbers of 77 on either side. Now, this Babylon glyph corresponds to the tree of life where it's pointing down towards the earth, right? Malkut. And Daily Plaza had roots north and south 77 flowing through it. So if you transpose that, like on Crowley's Babylon glyph, that is incorporated into Daily Plaza, this 77 Crowley glyph. And if this is all about, you know, this sexual animal nature being purged in a purgatorial fire in a ritual, that all lines up with this Crowley stuff. And so 11, the number of magic itself, 77 is part of the idea of Oz. Now I think about Oz, Oswald. Oz is basically the Hebrew letters Ein and Zion, and these are the tarot cards of the devil and the lovers. They're the polar opposites. The devil is the darkest point of materialism or your sin nature, and the lovers is like this motif of illumination looking up to the heavens. So this is kind of what I think Baphomet is sort of built upon, where you're unifying those two cards in some weird way. And so 77 to me is kind of like this alchemical number, and 93, obviously, there's much to do about that. So yeah, again, those are all the, the flight numbers. And if you add up those flight numbers, it equals the gematria of the Hebrew word Boaz, which is the word for the dark pillar, Jeez. the pillar of darkness, the pillar of judgment or severity. It's part of one of the gematrias of it. The other number that goes, there's two different spellings of Boaz or Boaz. I don't know how people pronounce it. One enumerates the 356. That's all of the flight numbers in 9-11. The other enumerates the 377. And if you took out the license plate on JFK's limousine when he was shot, it's GG300. Now, G, seventh letter of the alphabet, you just throw in a seven there, GG equals 77. So it's like 77300 on the license plate. Add those together, it's 377. That's the other part of a gematria for the dark pillar of Boaz. And I have this all laid on a slide. People are probably kind of confused by it. But And then the last point I'll make about that is that GG, if you take the Hebrew letter for G, which is Gimel, that has a value of three. So GG could be seen as 33 as well. So his license plate basically says 33, 300. Add that together. It's 333. And that's a number of this Karanzan Demiurg figure and Crowley's passing through the abyss. And some people say it's associated with chaos magic. I don't really know much about that. But you have this encoding on the license plate of this Kabbalistic chariot of 333, a Crowley number. Also 377, this judgment number. Not to mention just 33 and 77 separated. 
And then 300, as I've mentioned, is the number for the tarot card of judgment, the Hebrew divine flame, the eternal flame, the sheen flame. That is so every single aspect of that license plate has all of these Kabbalistic numbers that are very much in line with this idea of death and resurrection going down into the darkness of materialism and this Saturnian lead and being purged by this fire. I mean, it's all in these numbers and it's crazy. And I try not to get too much in the numbers because that's going to confuse a lot of people, but I can't help myself, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it is crazy. We, we mentioned the 313 in the frame of the Zapruder film, and then you got this in the license plate. It is just crazy to have this kind of synchronicity detail. And if I've learned anything about magic, it's that your magic is going to be more potent the more things you can stack on top of it. You know, Gordon White, who's taught me a lot about magic, kind of talks about when you're doing your personal practice, he equates it to a slot machine, kind of like, you know, you want to line up the right planetary hour with the right planetary day, with the right planetary, you know, with the right time of month, with the right day of the week, with your own birth chart. The more you can stack up, the more potent it's going to be. And that seems to be in play here with things as simple as a license plate. It's all coded. Yeah. I mean, that is a point that, I'm glad you said it because I can't stress that enough. The more esoteric shit you throw into a ritual, the more powerful it will be. That's just like a practical theory of it. So if they're throwing in like every ritual in the book, it's crazy. And think about the, the effectiveness of it. This happened over 50 years ago, and it's still like one of the most hotly popularized topic in like, I guess, the conspiracy world or the truther world, if you want to call it that. But even in the public, and then we think about like the movie JFK, like this is something that has been going on. Like I said, there's all these articles or newspaper magazine covers that come out still on the Kennedys and the mythology around it. The more they flood us with it, the more it just keeps going. It's really strange. Right. And I mean, in American history, it's probably the JFK assassination, the moon landing and 9-11 would be the three of the biggest things that are in American history, and all of them are just drenched in this shit. <laughs> Fascinating stuff overall, man. And huge thanks for the amount of preparation you put into doing this show. Clearly, formatting slides and all that stuff, you put several hours into it, and people should know that and appreciate it. Is there anything else to drop on them before we go? Of course, you still have your YouTube channel. Like you said, you're kind of trying to get away from this stuff in some regard. I keep sucking you back in. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, you know, you also talked about maybe making astrology your life's work or something. Where are you with that stuff? Yeah, I think what my plan is, I'll, I'm going to keep the YouTube going, but I, I need to take a break and kind of assimilate what I think about all this stuff. I have learned a lot more about astrology, so I'm feeling much more confident with that. And that was part of the reason why I don't like promoting my old JFK series because I wasn't as informed about some of those things. So I'm kind of, when I go through the astrology sections, I'm not really giving the greatest information on it. But I'm working with that. I'm going to try to make a website, launch it, and I want to try to make it affordable. I see a lot of astrology out there. And again, I don't care what people charge. I'm not here to like call people out on outrageous prices to me. But that's something that's important to me. I, I want to try to perhaps go that route. But try to make it in a way that if people want to go through it, because you can talk about it forever, man. And, and especially when you're talking about yourself and the nature of your life, you're going to go on and on and on about it. And 
that can rack up if you're somebody's charging $300 an hour for a video. Right. And I just, I just, that's just, you know, I can't even justify that for me personally. So I want to try to figure out a system that works that I feel comfortable with. And then I also kind of am thinking about doing some other series on YouTube. One that might be like more like advice for truthers and not in a way that like, I know everything about, you know, looking at conspiracy, but more like, these are the things that have been helpful for me. Looking at this information, looking at that information, not giving opinions about it, but saying, hey, man, these are things that I think are really important to look at if you're just coming across all this stuff, different perspectives and help dealing with it, you know, not being so bummed out by it, not being so, uh, you know, because I, you know, when you first come into this, usually you're hit with the fear porn first. The economy is going to crash, the whole, the, the, you know, the Alex Jones stuff. You got to buy gold, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've gone through that and you just realize like there's a lot of different traps that cloud your emotional mind versus your logical mind. And I don't even think that people are necessarily conscious of it who are promoting fear porn. I don't, I don't get angry at people anymore about that uh, as much because usually when you're duped into something, the first thing you do when you, you admit it is you project all your anger on the thing that duped you. So this is why when people come out of like Orthodox Christianity, they have a huge bone to pick with it because they feel like they've been <laughs> brainwashed or vice versa. Somebody comes out of guilty. Somebody, yeah, but somebody comes out of new age <laughs> and then they become a Christian. They have a bone to pick with new agers being all satanic. It's like this polarity that you got to be careful about because that is, I think, how deception works. They play off your emotional baggage with these things it's just how any fucking cult works you know what i mean and so mm -hmm. i kind of want to just put some information out to people that help me deal with those things and and step back when i felt like i was falling into those patterns and so just create a, like, a little series where like five ten minute videos of me just kind of talking about those sorts of things and maybe it would be helpful for people because again i'm on the part of it where i want to start bringing <laughs> a bit more positive aspects to all this stuff and and that's kind of a reflection of my state of all this like I'm interacting more with my immediate community, people who don't know about any of this stuff, people who are still in the matrix. I still find a lot of value in that and getting away from this. And, you know, I've been doing different things, getting more active in sports again, stuff like uh, things I think are really healthy. And I'm able to interact with that world and not be bogged down by like when something happens like Las Vegas and everyone's talking about it. I'm just chill about it. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. I think that that's a ultimately a place where people want to be, where you've recognized all this darkness and you're not ignoring it, but you're able to deal with it in a constructive way and still be a decent human being, at least more often than not. So that's kind of where I'm going with all of this. And uh, I guess once I get the astrology officially launched, maybe we can get in touch and do a little show that talks about stuff that has to do with that and ways you can utilize it in a, a positive way without any real like overly religious component to it just an aspect of psychology i guess for sure man yeah i think that'd be great and i think you should pursue that track you got a real knack for it and you're definitely right the biggest chip on my shoulder has been about being raised catholic and going through that catholic school system and of course they did have another box for me to fall right into which was atheism and that really took up just as much time and i should probably be mad about that too but you know, in the end, I don't think either is right. And it was the psychedelics that showed me the box I wanted to be in. And that's, I think, I don't know why they're illegal, but <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> yeah. And oh, sorry, I'll just counter that point with one thing. Yeah. I mean, that's the process, you know, it's kind of like the way your, your relationship with your parents, 
You inherit good and bad things from them. You see the good things coming out of you. You see the bad things. Now, a natural reaction when you see the bad things coming out of you, you get angry at your parents. Mm. And that's happened to me. But at some point, you have to have that higher mind of like forgiveness or understanding that I can't change those things in them. So I'll just change it in myself and lead by example. And you kind of perform your own weird alchemical transformation that way. And you end up having a better relationship with them where if you can understand people's flaws better, you don't cater to them by not doing them yourself. And that's really all you can do because you can't control everybody else. And that's the problem, I think, is everybody wants to control people to bring them into their own mindset because it gives you this self reaffirmation of your own beliefs. And to me, that's kind of egoic, you know, and so it's a lot of fine lines with this stuff. That's my personal viewpoint on it. And I think that a lot of this occultism with balancing the opposites, that concept is a great concept. It's just, (laughs) it's the way a macro concept manifests. Does the macro match up with the micro? And that's where the things differ between me and my relationship with this stuff and how the elitist occultists seem to be implementing it. And I think that everybody has probably had some sort of understanding of that at their journey throughout looking at all this stuff. And I commend people for looking at it. And even when people get upset and and angry and, and start behaving maybe like a little bit badly, that's part of this process. It's very strange. And it sucks that we all have to look at an event and be like, did people die here? Did people not die? Yeah. It just sucks that we're put in that position to have to try to make that call in our head. And that is something I can sympathize where I don't really fault people for making a claim on it either way. I don't like doing that. But like at some point, you just kind of throw your hands up in the air and like, dude, I'm just going all in on this because I'm fucking sick of like balancing this all out. And I have sympathy for that. So, Amen. And I do think you make a great point about the fact that you got to work on yourself first. It reminds me of Jordan Peterson. He picks on the social justice warrior protesters a little bit, but he says, you know, these people are out there in the streets thinking they have all the ideas in the world that are going to change society. And if everybody just did things their way, it'd be better. How many of them haven't even cleaned up their room? How many of them have a filthy (laughs) house? Like you really got to start at the basis at your own level, things you can control, work on your own sphere before you go out telling everybody else how they should live. Because if you didn't do the basics, and most of us don't, then you really don't have a leg to stand on. Yep, I agree. And it really all just, I think, begins with humility. And, you know, Satan, Lucifer, whatever that archetype means to you, whether it's Gnostic or Orthodox, I don't really care. But the idea of pride creating vanity and, and problems and issues, I really resonate with that because Whenever I've succumbed to that and thought I was more than I was, that is when I took the hardest falls because you don't see it for a long time. And then once you admit it, man, it hurts, but it relieves a whole set of weights that were on you. And that I think is part of this process of just being in this community, looking at this stuff. We all go through different cycles and stages of that. And that's one thing I think we can all unite on in a global sense (laughs) Mm. or a plain sense, whatever you believe. Like that's like the one real unity of us rather than this fake bullshit unity they keep trying to push on us. Boom. Fair enough, man. Well said. And I guess we'll talk again when you get attainableastrology.com off the ground. And (laughs) And uh, I'll do your chart, man. I'll get to it. Yeah. I'll I'll give you a Christmas gift. There you go. I love it. (laughs) Well, great talking with you, man. You blow more minds in the U.S. military. Thanks again. Take care out there. All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. You got it.
Wow, folks. Wow. Michael Joseph back in the saddle. Third time is a charm. I really enjoyed that. And please do look to the show notes for the companion video he made to this episode and all the informative slides. There's like dozens of them all arranged really well. Don't let it go to waste. Clearly, this is a passion project for the guy, and he puts a lot into everything he does. That's why I really do think he should stick with doing this type of research. We could use some people who get down into the details and also have some objectivity about them, so I hope he keeps doing his thing. And I would venture to guess that many of you probably had at least a couple aha moments with this sort of approach to a topic that's really been done to death. I've just been so into the esoteric elements of these major events recently, of course Vegas comes to mind, that I thought the JFK assassination would be just another event worth revisiting through that lens. And luckily, I got a guy. I thought the stuff about the decrowned king and the chariot was really interesting, as well as Dealey Plaza and the Tree of Life overlay, and of course the life path number stuff. Although I was thinking about the life path number and how that could work if it's derived from your birthday, since the Gregorian calendar is not really a product of the natural universe. Star alignments affecting your life, I kind of get, but a man-made calendar? I guess, like Preston Gibbs said, there really is a system in everything. A pattern will unfold eventually. But I even asked Michael about this, and of course that's something he's wondered before. But for him, he said it was best to stop trying to rationalize all that and just chalk it up to an element of metaphysical transcendence and... I think that's not a bad approach. I tend to drive myself crazy with these sorts of, if this is true, then how does that work, etc., etc., type of hamster wheel mindsets. But Michael was also telling me about some further research he was doing into JFK Jr. and the plane crash that he was getting into after the show was already recorded, and he was saying how JFK Jr.'s plane could also be considered a chariot and... It crashed on the same day as the Apollo 11 moon launch and the Trinity test. His birth path tarot number was also 7 and 16, which 7 is the chariot and 16, which is the tower. It just always keeps spiraling out. I think he's adding a slide about this, but it just keeps going. Like Chris Knowles in the Siren Saga, I'm still talking to him about that. In fact, there's a few elements, if you're following the Secret Sun blog, that you might have noticed my name popped up, but it always tends to go deeper when you're talking about these esoteric elements. There's just such a strong undercurrent of connectedness to me recently. And not like in the, I just did LSD for the first time sense, but almost like the universe is fucking with me. I'm finding myself involved in certain stories that I'm looking into, kind of in the way that a lot of authors we've talked to have said, about their own research journeys, that they get a bit personal. Strange stuff. But the other thing I wanted to drop on you before I let you go, I did another live show with the guys from Tinfoil Hat. I really enjoyed it. It did get a bit chaotic right off the bat as Eddie Bravo went to war with some Earth scientists in the crowd about the Flat Earth. But that kind of stuff does crack me up, and being a part of it is just on another level for me. We actually put the long clip of Eddie vs. the Earth Scientists up on both of our YouTube channels, and then we kept the whole video 
for the whole show as a bonus for plus members slash Patreon subscribers of either podcast. So we are going to keep doing these live shows from time to time, and I think that's how we're going to use them. A live show really is just a live show for the people who attend, but we're also going to try to put videos up as bonus content. And I actually had a few listeners write me saying that they don't like the new comedy direction THC is going in, and they were a little concerned. And to that I say, look, I'm going to do other things in my life. I'm going to try other formats. I'm going to try other media. I'm going to do a lot of things just for the life experience. And I might put out some stuff that you don't like at all. And that's fine. But the higher side chats is not changing. I'm always going to do the five shows a month with five researchers I find interesting. So if you want to enjoy that and ignore everything else, by all means, that doesn't bother me. Don't download the THC cover songs. Don't use the forums. Don't watch the Armenia video from the trip with Graham Hancock. I just try to add cool stuff in there. But none of it takes away from what is always my priority. Five good interviews a month. Or four and an all right one. I mean, you know, nobody's perfect. But that said, if you are a crossover fan to the comedy crew of guys like Eddie Bravo and Sam Tripoli, if you do like the more casual lot, well, casual, I guess, isn't the right word. Nothing with this amount of shouting and yelling could really be considered casual, but less rehearsed, I should say. If you're a fan of the less rehearsed live show and the comics involved, it's up on the plus site, as is the second half of this podcast. And in it, as always, there's a lot of good stuff. With Michael, we talked about the Princess Diana parallels. We talked about Square to Globe, Alchemy, and the King. We got into which conclusion Michael is brought to by analyzing the esoteric elements in relation to who the guilty parties might be and where the truth behind the conspiracy might lie. We talked about the thought that some high-level players in the simulation of life could be NPCs, to use a video game analogy. The chariot as a symbol for the world's soul, reflection between the king and the kingdom, a wider conversation about who's at the top of the pyramid and how it's structured, esoteric symbolism and technology, and what that indicates about some of man's crowning achievements, symbolic and numerological connections between the Trinity Test and the Apollo missions, and a lot of other good stuff. Remember, $5 a month for five two-hour-long shows, sometimes longer. I think this one is an extra half hour. Big thanks again to Michael Joseph for all the work he did and for that extra time and the supplemental material he gave us. And I'll see ya. I've done my part. Your move, ritual organizers, occult overlords, and metaphysical masters of our domain. Your fucking move.